electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The state of stocks is a new month and a really big week get underway. The Fed in focus, of course, along with Apple earnings, so much more. Our investment committee debating all that is at stake for your money. Joining me for the hour today, Stephen Weiss, Joe Terranova, Jenny Harrington, and Jim Labenthal. Check the markets. We are good for about 64 and a third on the Dow. S&P 500 is a fractional winner. The Dow, uh, the uh, Nasdaq is a a fractional loser. So, Joe, we got we got May underway. We got the First Republic story with JPM, Fed decision on Wednesday, Apple on Thursday. This is for all the marbles this week, so to speak, on this part of the rally. Well, you defined a lot of fundamental elements. Let's now look real quick at the technicals because we're approaching that 4,200 level. Let's see what the market does at that 4,200 level. Do we find new buyers above 4,200 technically oriented and see a breakout or not? Uh, and going back and kind of understanding the fundamental environment, how did we get to 4,200? We got to 4,200 on the mega caps. We got to 4,200 on better than expected earnings. Mm -hmm. We've been able to, in the last several days, digest this First Republic news and and really treat it as it's idiosyncratic in its nature. I don't think anyone's going to be surprised. The Federal Reserve's going to raise 25 basis points tomorrow. In some fashion, they might indicate that we are near the end of that rate hiking cycle. Do they use the word pause or not? Not necessarily sure. If they don't do any of that, okay, then the market is going to be greeted with a little bit of disappointment, I would suspect. I mean, but overall, we're making the push to 4,200. That's clear. Okay. So, Jenny, to the, to the notion of you know, Joe saying that the First Republic thing is largely idiosyncratic, I mean, Jamie Dimon himself, there are only so many banks that were off sides this way. There may be another smaller one, but this pretty much resolves them all, he said. Uh, this part of the crisis is over. So some reassuring words, I, I suppose you could say, from Diamond on, on the idea of, okay, now we're going to see just one after another after another, right. and that's going to be a, an anvil around the neck of this market. Uh, okay, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. It was interesting. Josh and I were having this argument when we were on last week, and Josh was saying something like, I think there's more to go. Immediately in the aftermath of SVB, I saw some really fascinating data that showed all the regional banks and what percents of their of their investment portfolios were held to maturity and available for sale. And you saw how truly idiosyncratic SVB and First Republic were. So right after that, I got much more comfortable with, what, with the idea that this was contained to a few banks that had made some really bad decisions. So I'm feeling okay right now. I look at it the way Joe does, I think, which is to say, hey, you know, we know what the Fed's doing and that's almost over. We've been through a really scary event mm -hmm. and we got through it. Mm -hmm. um, we're getting through earnings and earnings are better than they expect. But here's where I bump into a wall. Where I bump into a wall is the following, which is if everything goes well, really well, we can get to maybe $240 of earnings, right? 
What's the right multiple? Oh, see, I was thinking of that too when you were talking. I was like, okay, I know where she's going. Um, mm -hmm. The valuation wall. Right. Is as I wrote down those words as you were talking, because that's, yep. that's essentially where, the wall. Right. right. And so, so I, I can put this really rosy scenario together. But then, if you put 18 times on that, all you get to is 43.50 on the S&P. It's up three and a half percent from here. That's just not that inspiring. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Jim's going to give you the reason why. Why we should get that past you can it? break through the wall. Right, that the wall isn't get so high to well, get over. Right, I mean, you I must. Mean, that's the, every, the, your every, whole case. Everybody kind of knows what I'm going to say. You know it. Joe knows it. Jenny Jimmy's knows it. Jimmy's the sledgehammer. Oh, wait, thanks. But that's not what it is. It's that the, it, you got to look at the individual stocks and the individual sectors. And I would agree with you that you know what's led the market this year has been the Nasdaq. It's been Fang. Hasn't even been all of tech. It's been Fang that's led the market. I mean, uh, Nasdaq's up something like 20 percent. The S&P 500 is up nine percent. But if you look at this earnings season so far, halfway through it, the biggest earnings beats and the most frequent earnings beats within sectors have come from industrials basic materials, energies. Compared to the S&P 500 overall, technology has actually come in less frequent as earnings beats within its sectors and with smaller beats. Now, what's happened here, as I said, FANG has taken off with this market. But where the opportunity lies, and Jenny, this is to answer your question, is the valuations and the earnings growth outside of tech, outside of FANG, are really attractive, really attractive. So, Weiss, it just, you know, do you continue to go with the mega caps? Or do you take what Jim says and say, you know what, there is, there are other attractive parts of this market that maybe now you lean into um, if you don't think things are going to be as bad as some thought they would be? Well, I'm not so sure things won't be as bad as others think they would be. Uh, look, if you take out Amazon, the fact is that S&P earnings were basically flat this quarter. And sure, you've had 80% of companies beat. But you've had earnings cuts over the last five quarters. And when you're talking about 79% of companies beat, typically you're not far from that level regardless of the economic environment because companies manage expectations. So the way I look at it, look, spending time with a lot of people here, including CEOs of some of the largest companies in the world, these are people that are reading tea leaves, trying to understand which way the economy is going. They are laying out the tea leaves. They're making the tea leaves. So I continue to be bearish. Now, where am I wrong? Where could I be wrong? Well, I could be wrong in the fact that maybe it's a new generation of investors who's so used to V-shaped recoveries and free money, they're just looking at a new pricing or new valuation paradigm. And that's very plausible. And I don't say that belittling them. I say that may be the landscape going forward. So unquestionably, the economy is weakening. We still haven't felt anywhere near the full impact of the Fed tightening cycle, and that is yet to come. So mm -hmm. I'm comfortable taking selective bets like in the healthcare stocks or in, uh, in tech. Did I miss Microsoft? Absolutely. Can it keep going? Actually, I think it can. Meta as well, because yes, Scott, the entry question is you keep going with the mega caps because there's safety, there's cash flow, there's balance sheet, and there's efficiencies coming on. Maybe you need to hang out with our headliner uh, a little bit more out there in L.A. Uh, Steve, that's Brad Gerstner, of course, of Altimeter, who is sitting next to you and we're so privileged to have today. He's coming off his best quarter ever. Uh, he's been positioned correctly. I mean, you guys know of his mega cap positioning and it has worked in a in a big way. So, Brad, you, you welcome back. It's great to see you. Uh, you just heard Weiss lay out the reasons why he's rather bearish sitting right next to you. Um, what would you say to, to that perspective and how does it sort of mesh with your view? 
Well, first, let me just say it's great to be back at Milken. We're in theater in the round, people all around us. I remember, Scott, when we were first together here in the fall of 21, um, it was pretty empty. We're in the middle of COVID, and you and I had a really important interview on that day. You asked me what I thought was going to happen to the market. And remember, we had this asset price bubble. Rates were at zero. And I said, I think COVID is over. I think the world is normalizing. And we're going to go back to January 2020 levels on the 10-year, which meant that multiples had to retrace in technology by about 30%. And I said, if that happens, it's going to feel catastrophic, even though it will only be normalization. And that's exactly what we got. 22 was a tech recession um, because of that normalization process. And thanks for the shout out about Q1. But keeping it real, 22 was our worst year. 22 was a big challenge for a lot of tech investors, even those of us who had on hedges because everything went down. And now we see it rolling through, you know, at first the banking system, soon to come, uh, you know, commercial real estate. And where I agree with Weiss is there's still a lot of uncertainty in the system. But we had Wilson at the start of the year for Morgan Stanley. That was the consensus in the market, that the S&P was going to go to 3,000, 3,300, that we were going to have an earnings recession in Q1, that inflation was going to stay hot, rates were going to have to go higher, and we didn't get that. I thought we had a regime change at the start of last year. We, this is no longer about inflation higher and rates higher. This is now about inflation lower and rates will peak in May uh, or June of this year, and then they'll likely follow as well. We think that setup, coupled with the rationalized multiples of tech stocks, made it a great time to start investing in companies like Meta, like NVIDIA, like Microsoft, that we expected mm -hmm. to beat earnings, and they delivered. You know, you tweeted a few weeks ago, uh, quote, clear that the higher inflation, higher rates playbook that crushed long duration tech stocks is largely behind us. Does that tell you that this run that we've seen in large cap tech is likely to continue? And are you, in some respects, even surprised by the degree at which those stocks have gone up, which have clearly helped out your own performance, obviously? But but generally speaking, I mean, they've really led this rally. Well, to be honest, what I was surprised by is the parabolic rate hikes of 22. Inflation, frankly, was hotter for longer than we expected. And the multiples on these stocks got crushed even more than I expected. I think Meta at its trough was seven or eight times earnings. So, you know, when you look at the other side, Meta, of course, has doubled this year. But at 18 times, so the market multiple, 18 times next year's earnings gets you somewhere 320 to 360 dollars. That's just one stock in tech. So we think that this regime change is behind us, that now we're going to, you know, inflation's going to move lower, that rates are stabilizing. And in that environment, it's a good environment for technology. Now, when it comes to other parts of the market, we still have a lot of other parts of the market that are priced at peak multiples on peak earnings. And we think there is going to be damage to come in things like commercial real estate. So one of the things that's our theme at Altimeter is, is just dispersion. Remember, in, in 2020, everything was up because we had an asset price bubble fueled by 0% rates. In 2022, it was all tech down. 
This year, it's good earners go up. The companies that get fit go up. The companies that are driving free cash flow go up. But the companies that are on the wrong side of those trends and trajectories are going down, which makes it a good time for long, short public funds. So, you know, you, you may have heard, I'm not sure if you were seated with a microphone, uh, I mean, with, um, you know, with the thingy in your ear, which you could hear Jim Labenthal um, lay out the case that, you know, he is more of a value investor. He is more, you know, geared towards the cyclical parts of the market, which he argues uh, are cheap and cheaper at this point than some of the mega cap tech stocks. Now, if you think inflation is coming down and you think rates have peaked, and generally speaking, you think that the economy is not as, as, as terrible as, as some would have you believe, what about the case that, that he makes? Are you looking actively for other parts of that kind of market to put money to work? Yeah, no, on the long side, we have ample opportunity in technology. And I tell Jim, you know, uh, Meta may have been one of the greatest value stocks of all time uh, this year. I think it still is. It's a company that people expected to grow at 2% in Q2, and they just guided 2 to 14% in Q2. So we have growth returning for a stock that's still valued as though it's a value stock. But when I look at other parts of the markets, I mean, take autos as just one example. In 2022, they were able to pass on massive price increases because we had supply chain disruption. Now supply chains are being normalized. The cost of a cargo container coming from China to the west coast of the United States has gone from 12 or 15,000 at its peak back down to $1,700. Those price reductions are going to be passed on to the consumer. I think Tesla's had more price reductions on its autos in the past few months than they had in the past few years. And so I think it's going to be difficult for companies like autos to pass on price increases in a world that is starting to deflate around key prices. Mm, that's really interesting. And it's funny, you know, I guess ironic that you brought up uh, autos of all things uh, because, the, and Jim's sitting right here. General Motors is, is one of yours, which got upgraded today, by the way, by, by Adam Jonas over at Morgan Stanley. But how do you respond to that sort of commentary and, and fundamental analysis from Brad? Uh, it's good fundamental analysis. I think where Brad and I will differ is on a question of degree, uh, of how quickly is the supply chain healing and how, how long will it take for these prices to come down? Because simply put, I mean, the inventory on dealer lots is still just tremendously low. It's half of what the uh, normal average is. And that's frankly just still giving pricing power uh, to the auto manufacturers. Now, in GM's report last week, uh, what you saw is, once again, for the 19th time in 20 quarters, they beat guidance. I don't know what that hissing is. Is that me or somebody else? Just but, keep, well, we're working but, uh, on that. Yeah, okay. We can all hear it. All right. Um, but, so for the 19th out of 20 quarters, GM beat uh, their, their estimates uh, for earnings, raised guidance, which indicates that the consumer is hanging in there, even with these higher prices for cars. And I don't, this isn't a me versus Brad thing, but at five times this year's earnings below book value and zero debt, net debt at the automotive uh, level, it's actually a great buy here. It's not just that it's cheap. It's that the growth is still there. So, you know, you, you, you will have people, Brad, making that case. And let me just let everybody know we're, we're um we're not naive to the technical issues that um, I think we're all experiencing here. I, I'm, I'm assuming that most of you at home uh, can hear it. Uh, we're working on it. So if you can bear with us on that, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best. Um, so, Brad, let me ask you this. Meta, right? You, you touched on it already, obviously. How responsible do you feel uh, for what we've all witnessed 
taking place within that company and then the results in, in the stock. And for those who don't remember, it was your letter, right, that urged Meta to get more fit, as you said. Do you feel responsible for this turnaround in some respects? Not at all, Scott. I mean, listen, any investor in the world knows that founders, CEOs, employees who show up and grind every day, the board, they get all the credit, but they also get all the blame when things go wrong. I think as investors, I've always viewed myself as a partner to the companies that we invest in. Um, I've always viewed myself as a truth teller, as a sounding board, when they want to think through potential priorities that they may set. And so I think it was an open, um, it was an open secret last year in Silicon Valley. Everybody knew all companies in Silicon Valley had become bloated as a result of zero interest rates, hired too many people too fast. Um, and the consequence of that was that the pace of product releases slowed down, the pace of innovation slowed down, earnings, uh, you know, uh, started decreasing. And so I'm, I, I just want to give all credit to Mark and to the team. It's incredible to watch the, the turnaround, really, that they're leading. It's important to note that this wasn't just a one-time cost reduction by Meta. Read Mark's letter from March of this year. He said, this is the year of efficiency and AI. They reprioritized the company around AI. They got efficient. The company is moving much faster. The product releases are coming much faster. And so I think he set a leadership tone for all of Silicon Valley, for not only Meta, um, that others can follow. But I was incredibly impressed. I don't think I've ever seen a company at this scale move this fast. You know, so I want to know, so from here forward, how do we reconcile, how do you reconcile the fact they're still losing billions on the metaverse, um, they, they, they're still making the in, in big investment that, that they are. I know you saw the Washington Post story over the weekend in which the headline said, quote, how Mark Zuckerberg broke Meta's workforce, roiled by waves of layoffs and a costly investment in the metaverse. Many insiders say the Facebook founder has lost his vision and the trust of his workforce. One employee saying, quote, it's like they went, well, former employee, uh, it's like they went from move fast and break things to slow down, break things, then maybe fix it later on a case-by-case -case basis. Is there any truth to that, do you, do you think? Are you sympathetic to some of those concerns from, from those who may still be there and clearly from those, uh, some of those who have left? Well, first, let me just say that change is hard. So, of course, not everybody's going to be on board at a moment in time when you're reprioritizing and moving fast. But let me also say, I found that article to be totally shameful, quoting two dozen anonymous sources, an anonymous former employee who might be upset and have commentary about the company's not doing well. I hear from a lot of Meta employees. I live in Silicon Valley. My kids go to school in Silicon Valley. I can tell you that there's tremendous momentum on the product side, on the morale side, et cetera. I think the leadership example is second to none. Um, and then when, it, when, you, when you talk about the metaverse, remember, go back and read my letter. I never said that they shouldn't make metaverse investments. Quite the contrary. I said that they need to reprioritize and double down on AI because I think no company is gonna benefit as much from AI uh, as they have the potential to. And the metaverse is a 10-year investment. So calibrate the investment choose milestones along the way. And that's exactly what you heard him say on the call. They're investing in the AI components of the metaverse. 
things like AI-driven avatars that I think have been downloaded now a billion times. So I love the long-term investment philosophy, but I also love the short-term prioritizations around AI. And I think disgruntled mainstream media, uh, you know, articles that are quoting two dozen anonymous and former employees, I just think it's shameful. Let me let me pivot you then um, to, I think, what is the obvious segue, which I was surprised to see, and I think our viewers may be as well, uh, which is Alphabet. You sold it. Um, tell me why. Well, Scott, let me first say that, you know, I first invested in, in, in Google, I think, in 2004, 2005. Um, this company is one of the most important companies in the history of American capitalism. It defined uh, a generation of the internet around search and information retrieval, made all of our lives better. I think they have nine products, over a billion users. Um, but over the course of the last year, last 10 years really, since their acquisition of DeepMind in 2012, um, we've seen a slowing of product velocity at Google. Um, I was hopeful on the call, their numbers were good on the call, but what I really wanted to hear Right? If I'm the CEO of Google, I have one job. I have one job. Do not let ChatGPT secure a leadership position in search and discovery when it comes to AI. And that's exactly what's happened. 200 million people now treat ChatGPT a verb as synonymous with discovery in the age of AI. Um, they breached the Google moat. Um, I haven't heard a good answer out of Google. Even if Google wasn't going to go first, I would have expected fast follower out of Google, launching the next day with a better product integrated into their services. I didn't hear that either. Maybe we'll hear more on May 10th at Google I.O. Um, if we do, if I see them really embrace the age of efficiency, really get lean, as Mark says, leaner is better, flatter is faster. If we see them do that, we see them get innovative about products. They haven't released a new product in seven years. And their response uh, in Bard um, you know, fell flat, and it fell flat because they let somebody go first and grab the mantle of leadership. And I frankly think that ChatGPT is accelerating their lead, not the other way around. But I mean, you did hear, I'm, I'm assuming that you did hear Sundar Pichai on, on 60 Minutes, um, you know, obviously address the issue it, it itself. You know that they're investing so heavily in it. They, you know, reshuffled, if you will, part of their organization to have a real keen focus on AI, and I'm, I'm wondering, did you attempt to speak to Sundar before you sold your stake in his company? No, I, I, I didn't speak to Sundar, um, you know, and, and as I said, this company had the leadership position in AI. I mean, I encourage everybody to watch a documentary on YouTube uh, called The Making of AlphaGo. Um, it really gives you insights into how DeepMind was so far ahead and that is what is so mind-boggling. How over the course of the last three to four years have they gone from this runaway leadership position to now trying to play catch up to chat GPT and frankly, moving slower from everything that I can see. Yes, they've started to make some changes, but I think it's high time that, that we hear from the board. I mean, where is, where's John Hennessy and the board on this? Where, is, where, where are Larry and Sergey on this? Everybody says they're back in the building. I don't see evidence of that. Um, we need a healthy, we need a fit Google in order to provide a counterbalance in the age of AI. Um, 
AI brings a lot of goodness, but it also brings a lot of challenges. I think Google can help architect a responsible future, but we need them performing better than what I've seen over the course of the past few years. So I wait by the sidelines. I would love to talk with, you know, with folks at the business. Um, but the bottom line is today, I don't see a level of urgency around efficiency and product release and getting, getting leaner and faster that's required to compete uh, with ChatGPT. You know, one of, one of the highlights of the program today, in, 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 um, in addition to having you on, is that Joe Terranova has just rebalanced his, um, his ETF, the, the Joe T. And I'll turn to him for, for a moment, too, because you added Meta, okay? I don't want to do the whole thing here, but you bought Meta, and you bought some other large-cap tech back, which we'll get into later. It's glaring that Alphabet was not on your list. No, it's, it's not. And the yellow light is still there because in terms of studying momentum, it, it has not recovered the magnitude that obviously Meta did. And then in terms of on the fundamental side, the balance sheet side, the revenue growth, you have not seen the dramatic turn there as well. So I think Brad has done an excellent job um, advocating for a changing dynamic in the market. And, and what I'm doing is I am looking constantly to see if, in fact, there's an overall paradigm shift within the market. And you know, for the better part of the last several months, I've hinted to you that I see that coming. And here it is now. There is a market personality that is a much different market personality than 2022. You have to acknowledge that. And the last point on that is when you study momentum as a single factor, one of the largest ETFs that invests around momentum it's weighting right now has 35% to healthcare and 24% to energy. So that shift is unfolding. It's in the process. You have to acknowledge it and you have to go with it because the belief is good things are happening now. Those good things will happen in the future. It will continue and it evolves into a trend. So let's do this. Uh, Brad, bear with me. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll sneak one in. We'll come back. I've got many more questions for you uh, on, on AI in general, whether you think there's a bubble uh, right now in AI. You've seen so many other stocks. NVIDIA is another huge position for, for Brad Gerstner, too. Uh, that stock has just done so well. More with Brad Gerstner on the other side of this quick break. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We're back around the highs of the day for stocks, too. Uh, Triple-digit gain for the Dow. Back with, uh, back with Brad Gerstner. Joining us today from Milken out in Los Angeles. So to the question of uh, an AI bubble, which, you know, Josh Brown has talked about on this program in the last couple of weeks. The stocks have obviously done incredibly well that are around AI. We just talked about some. NVIDIA, I mentioned, is another one. 
on the, the earnings calls, right? Meta mentions AI 57 times. Alphabet mentions it 52 times. Microsoft 36, Amazon 12. Is there a bubble in AI right now? I mean, Scott, before we talk about whether or not there's a bubble, I think it's just really important to calibrate um, what AI is all about. I mean, the investments in the data, in the silicon, in the models that allow machines to help humans make better decisions have been going on for decades. In 2017, we had a bit of a breakthrough with the transformer model. I remember Satya asked me to speak to the business roundtable in 2018. I said I thought that AI would be bigger than the internet itself, that it would un unleash a whole new wave of productivity for the US economy. And then because of some of the work by ChatGP, by OpenAI, by Microsoft, by Google, we have this Cambrian moment with ChatGPT that really brought the work that's been going on for a decade into the public consciousness. You know, you could have bought NVIDIA last Q4, right, for $125 a share. It's a double off of that low. They just beat revenue in the quarter significantly, but I think what you need to understand is this is not a snapshot. This is not a momentary beat on numbers. NVIDIA and Jensen, their remarkable founder and CEO, has been working on this problem of accelerated compute for over 30 years. This is going to allow every enterprise to become more efficient, every enterprise to better serve their consumers. It's gonna allow consumers to live better lives. So I think this is a transformative moment. It's now entered the consciousness of every boardroom, of every CEO. Here we are at Milken, right? An extraordinary event, 900 panels talking about how to move the economy forward, how to bridge the wealth divide, how to do you know, important things in, in US enterprise. And AI is the central most important topic of conversation. But five years from now, we won't be talking about AI this way. AI is going to be talked about the same way that we talk about the internet or we talked about mobile or cloud. It is the substrate that will power everything to move humanity forward. And so from that perspective, sure, in any particular moment in time, are there too many people jumping on the bandwagon? I see things in venture capital we passed on, I think, 100 companies related to AI. Wow. Sure, you'll have valuation concerns, but unlike Unlike something like crypto, where you and I sat, I sat in this very chair, and I said crypto is a $3 trillion market cap in search of a use case, right? In the case of AI, every company is already finding ways to benefit from AI, and we have full stack companies, Moderna, Tesla, et cetera, doing extraordinarily, extraordinary things built on the back of AI. So much more to come. Yeah, I'm also wondering how you think about the potential problems uh, around it. The so-called godfather of, of uh, AI recently left Alphabet and said of the technology, quote, it's hard to see how you can prevent the bad actors from using it for bad things. You worry about that? I mean, you can't not worry about that. Frankly, I remember reading Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat, when he was talking about the internet and how he said it would create super empowered individuals, individuals that had the ability to create as much harm as the nation state itself. And anybody who lived through the sobering moments of September 11, 2001, Witness that non-nation state actors that were able to coordinate using the internet and other other mechanisms to do harm. But at the end of the day, I'm an optimist on the human condition. We can't stop progress. 
This has way more potential for good than bad, but I'm happy that we have folks like them, folks like Elon that are raising their hands and saying we need to slow down and be responsible. Now, what does slow down mean? I think we need a healthy ecosystem. I would love to see the government, and I know the government is getting more involved, not necessarily setting up a, you know, an FDA for AI, as, as Chamath has suggested, but simply you know, making sure that we have the federal government, getting the federal government first on board with AI. I would love to see the Fed become more AI-driven in its decision-making. Um, but I think we need a healthy ecosystem. I said a healthy Google uh, makes for more responsible AI. Um, and so, sure, I think there are reasons for concern. I think it's, it's good to see so many voices that are discussing it, but we're not going to start hu stop human progress. We can't have every software engineer working on AI submitting their code to the federal government. That would be a disaster. China's not going to slow down. This is the arc on which all strategic conflicts will be based in the future. Um, so I think the U.S. has a massive advantage. Remember, ChatGPT, OpenAI, uh, DeepMind, those are U.S. companies. Those are U.S. innovations. So Uber, you're still in it, uh, reports tomorrow morning. Um, by the way, Dara is going to be on Squawk Box tomorrow morning. I told him that you, I saw him on Saturday night, by the way, in D.C. I told Dara, I said, Gerster's coming on. So I hope you're watching um, because you're a little disappointed. You told our producers that they haven't committed to the so-called age of efficiency like some others. Is that fair? Well, Scott, let me be, let me be fair. Um, at the start of COVID, so rewind the clock to March of 2020, Uber was hit extraordinarily hard because nobody was getting in cars and taking rides. They were forced to do a lot of layoffs before many of these other digital companies. But then when the world came back, Google continued, uh, Uber continued, uh, you know, to add people back and to grow and to hire. I think that there's more they can do. I think they are doing a lot. I would like to see Dara more forceful, more out front about their commitment to leaner is better, flatter is faster, and making sure that we see things like their stock-based comp come down, their earnings margins expand, their free cash flow margins expand. I mean, the stock last week was at 29 bucks. That's in spitting distance, spitting distance to where it was in March of 2020 at the start of COVID. So despite all the good things that they've done, they're not getting the response from the market. I would love to see them put a flag in the ground around free cash flow um, and do the things necessary to drive, uh, drive not only the company forward, but also to bring shareholders along for the ride. I think Dara's up for it, um, and, and I look forward to hearing from him tomorrow. Yeah, I hope we play this soundbite for him, too, uh, to react to uh, from hearing directly from a shareholder and an influential one, frankly, in, in what you know, you think the company can do to be even better uh, from here, because obviously the stock is up 31 percent year to date um, and they've really distanced themselves from Lyft. I think it's clear. And I think we know all of the, the reasons why I, I'm going to run. But I, before I, mean, I do let me, that, let me say, let, I, let me, yeah, go can, ahead. 
Go, go ahead. ahead, Scott. No, no, you go ahead. I, I was just going to say one, 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 other, one other thing on Uber. I mean, now that zero interest rates are behind us, you see the rationalization that's coming out of Lyft. They can't price things silly. They have to try to make money themselves. So we're seeing natural market leadership's um, margins, the benefit of market leadership, uh, uh, moving toward Uber. I think this is going to be an extraordinary company for a long time. It's going to move. Uh, the stock will move forward as they move people forward. You, you talked to us and... Before I let you go, uh, I guess you talked to us a couple of years ago about something that you call Invest, uh, Invest America. Um, and you're telling me privately that the groundswell around that you've seen pick up. Can you just tell me a, a little bit about what you are trying to accomplish with that initiative that some other very, very well-known names out there and elsewhere are involved in? Yeah, so frankly, Scott, that's what I'm here at Milken doing. Um, I think we have an issue in this country. Over 50% of the people in this company, country are not owners. Uh, they're outside the system looking in. We're about to have the largest labor displacement in the history of America and the history of capitalism caused by AI. We need to get out in front of this. There's a very simple solution. I'm pushing for a piece of legislation called Invest America. It would create a $5,000 investment account for every child, all four million of the children born in this country every year, it's a drop in the bucket, $18 billion that can come out of other inefficiencies in the government um, and make everybody part of the system. Outsiders become owners. If we had done that 30 years ago, a 30-year-old today, that account would be worth $300,000. It's hard not to root for America and capitalism and democracy when you're part of the system. We can't leave so, much, so many people out of the system. We need to turn them into owners. So I'm grateful for the incredible support lining up on the left and on the right, members of Congress and many influential folks out here who are beginning to move this forward. I'm dedicating a bunch of my personal philanthropy, millions of dollars, to driving this legislation forward over the course of the next three years because I think it's existential to our democracy and bridging the inevitable wage gap that already exists and that's going to exist in an even more profound way in the age of AI. All right. You keep us updated on that, and we appreciate you once again uh, joining us today. Brad, thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Brad Gerstner out at Milken. Of course, altimeter. All right, up next, I mentioned Joe's rebalancing of his ETF. We're going to get hot and heavy on that uh, right after this quick break. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started.
Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Courtney Reagan, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The Board of Supervisors picked by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to oversee Walt Disney World's operations is suing the company less than a week after Disney filed its own lawsuit against both DeSantis and the board. The competing suits see both sides fighting over control of Disney's operations and governance. The ongoing feud stems from Disney's opposition to DeSantis' signature Don't Say Gay legislation last year. Senator Tim Scott said he has a major announcement coming for later this month, teasing a possible run for the White House. The South Carolina Republican is expected to officially launch his presidential campaign on May 22nd, weeks after he launched an exploratory committee. Scott could become the second GOP candidate from the state in the 2024 race after former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley announced her candidacy in February. And the country's TV and movie writers are set to begin a strike at midnight if they are unable to make a deal before their current contract expires. Members of the Writers Guild of America voted last month to approve a strike and have been unable to come to an agreement with studios and production teams. The last strike by the WGA lasted 100 days. That was in 2007. Scott, back over to you. All right, Court, thank you very much. All right, up next, we break down Joe's latest moves. There are many. As he has just rebalanced, as we said, the Joe T ETF. We'll tell you what's in, we'll tell you what's out, we'll tell you the why next. All right, we're back. I mentioned Joe uh, making a number of moves in his rebalance. So we went through the mega caps. We don't need to go through all of them. I think you made the case. Alphabet was not on your list. We, we get it. Apple was, Meta's back, Microsoft's back, NVIDIA's back. Elsewhere, you bought Adobe, BlackRock, Chipotle, Salesforce, Lamb Research, Moderna, Netflix, and Nike. Talk to us. So a lot of these names are names that were previously liquidated from the portfolio. As example, Nike was liquidated in October of 2021 at higher levels. In the instance of Salesforce, Chipotle, Netflix, and Nike, what you've seen in the latest quarter is a significant improvement in revenue growth in addition to an improving environment when you're studying price momentum. Uh, for some of the other names that you mentioned, like BlackRock, like Lamb Research, we're just returning to previous positions. A lot of that is predicated on uh, reaching a trough in the fall in terms of price and now seeing the potential opportunity where the strength of the balance sheet can illuminate now that you've seen the worst has ultimately passed. So uh, these were significant changes. There were 40 buys and 40 sales in this rebalance. The average, That's the most to date. The average is generally around 33 names in and out. That's what's occurred over the last 10 rebalances. And I think it really represents the change, as I said before, in the market personality. So what's out is as interesting to me as what's in. Yes. Um, Pioneer. Why did you sell Pioneer? You love that stock. So energy exposure. Right? Energy. I, so I love Pioneer. And what the strategy does not incorporate is the M&A value. The heart? Well, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Your heart. But listen, it, it, it basically, it asks the question, what? It doesn't ask the question, why? If you ask the question, why, with Pioneer, you fall back on it is a, it is a crown jewel in the potential to be a target in M&A. So it's very difficult for me to see Pioneer come out of the strategy, and I'm going to sell it. You know that, because I eat my own cooking. You're going to what sell I it. Do do what, I just want to make sure people know what you're talking about. You're going to sell it personally. Sold it. You sold it personally. Sold it personally on Friday. Sold it personally on Friday. Um, difficult to do. Now, energy 
is carried at an overweight within the strategy was at 11%. Energy, we were a straight seller. We liquidated three energy names, took the exposure down to 10.4%. We're still overweight by at least twice as much relative to the S&P. By the way, consumer staples, the other sector in which it was a net seller. You sold ADM, Archer, Daniels, Midland, and you sold Freeport. Tell me about Freeport. The, and so you sold, you sold Freeport personally then too? Sold Freeport personally. Sorry, Jenny. It's okay. Um, the agriculture bull cycle has been neutralized. Mm -hmm. Let's be clear. Mosaic and Archer Daniels Midland are two names that were affected by that and removed from the portfolio. In the case of Freeport McMoran, the revenue growth has decelerated significantly, um, down 15% last quarter. It's down 8% over the last 12 months. Momentum as well as declining as copper is reaching its low point, its low price point for the year. Mm -hmm. So they were removed from the portfolio. Let's understand something though. Materials, industrials, Healthcare energy still held at an overweight. In terms of sectors, technology, we brought technology back up to market weight and it was dramatic. 16% exposure to technology in the previous quarter, now at 23%. Jenny. Yeah. What do you what do you have to say about what? Freeport? I think, well, I think actually the Pioneer and the Freeport are really interesting because Joe and I were getting into it on Pioneer last week. And Devin, and came, right Devin came out as well in right. energy. Interesting. And, but this goes right along with Freeport, too. And so what we said was we have different objectives. Mm -hmm. So I own Pioneer in our dividend strategy for the dividend yield. I didn't need this stock to grow. Um, we own Freeport in our discipline growth strategy. I think every portfolio manager needs to know what their edge is and needs to adhere very strictly to their discipline. No, so but don't you care about the fundamentals? Ah, Joe, totally. Joe, Joe, but Joe made a fundamentally negative case for Freeport. Okay, but here's the thing. Who cares the about thing. the dividend if the here's case the is negative? He made a fundamentally negative case for Freeport in the very near term. And I think one of the edges that we have at Gilman Hill is enormous patience. And if you look at Freeport and say over the next three, four, five, 10, 20 years, is there explosive demand for copper that's kind of never ending as we move more and more into, the, into EVs and electrification of everything? Yes. And after 2023, there's almost no copper coming online. There's no more copper mines coming online. So the way to get that pure play is through Freeport. What's my, what's my edge in our portfolio? It's that we can hold this for five years. We just have different rules around it. So I think it's a really cool um, conversation to have. You're exactly right in the short term. We look at really 10 years out on Freeport. I'm, I'm confused too about something. I want to just ask you generally speaking, I'm sure. just thinking about it. Um, now maybe it's the way that you are bound by the rules of doing what you do and how you have to rebalance. But so you don't care when you get out of these mega cap names after they've come down a lot and now you're getting back in after they've gone up a lot? How do you reconcile that in your mind? Yeah, that's, so that, that, that's a great question. Um, how you reconcile that in your mind, let's use as an example Meta, okay? Uh, we were sellers of Meta and, and upon inception of November of 2020, we owned Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Microsoft, and NVIDIA. We added Tesla in January of 2021. And in January of 2022, we began to reduce the mega cap position. So in the case of Meta, we sold Meta at $200 last April. 
okay, the stock went down to $112. You could say, okay, well, why doesn't this strategy is not going to buy it back at $112? What the strategy is going to do is it's going to wait for that prevailing weakness to dissipate and for the return of more favorable conditions, such as Brad eloquently defined, and we observe that in price itself. What do I believe? I believe now buying Meta at $230 or $240, I believe buying Meta at $240 is at the precipice of a budding trend that is going to look towards the future and understand that the challenges of the past are in the past. That's how I think about it. And a lot of these names will go in and out of the portfolio. We're trying to speak towards the present, the present rather. That's what my momentum is doing. Sure. Momentum guess, speaks towards the present. I guess part of my point is like if there was a rollover though in these mega cap names for whatever reason, mm -hmm. you're stuck essentially until the next time you do your we're, rebalance. We're rebalancing quarterly, okay, which I believe is a, right. a first mover advantage to us. And looking back and understanding a lot of these names came out of the portfolio in the end of January, uh, th that was a disadvantage to us in terms of performance. But gotcha. now you act to correct that. All right, we do final trades uh, after this quick break. Okay. Closing bell, 3 o'clock. Josh Brown's going to be with us along with Mark Newton. He'll tell us where he thinks this market can go as we are at the highs of the day as May begins. Steve Weiss, give me a final, please. Healthcare, staying with, the, with a good horse here. All right, you enjoy your time out at Milken, Mr. Weiss. Mr. Labenthal. Wynn Resorts, both Macau and Las Vegas are just killing it. Jenny H. Seagate, memories in the bottoming process, management stood behind the dividend yield on the call, 4.8%. And the man with the ETF. Joke on team. semiconductor, strong move higher, much more room to go to the upside. All right, so we're green across the board right now. The Dow is up about 120. S&P getting closer to 4,200. And the NASDAQ, which started negative, is now in the green as well. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit CNBC.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.